Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, November 21st, 2008. I'm Alana Rangi. Here on the 40th floor of Seven World Trade, we've got a view that's been known to make more than a few sets of legs turn to jelly. That is, if you're afraid of heights. Today, we're talking about fears and why that 40-floor drop might make your pulse race and your knees wobbly but have no effect on the person next to you. Joseph Ledoux is a neuroscientist at NYU. He studies what happens in the brain when we're afraid or anxious. He spoke at Science in the City last week, and today, we're not just facing our fears, we're getting the science behind them. So you missed the first Science of the Five Senses event. Lucky for you, you've got another chance. Four more chances, actually. Coming up on December 2nd, neurogeneticist Leslie Vosshall and scent expert Avery Gilbert team up to tackle the science of smell. Then it's the science of sight on January 12th, taste on February 12th, and all about hearing on April 29th. Get your tickets to this fresh and smart series online at www.nyas.org slash five senses. I started out being interested in the question of emotion in the more general sense of the term, but I quickly realized that um, what I was studying probably had more to do with the specific kinds of behaviors I was studying rather than the question of emotion in general. So yes, indeed, I ended up uh, focusing more on fear, and that turned out to be not such a bad choice anyway, because fear is probably the most basic, important emotion. You can put off eating, drinking, sex, everything for a certain amount of time. You can't put off dealing with danger. If there's something dangerous right in front of you, you've got to deal with it. Otherwise, you're not going to be here to do all those other things. Joseph Ledoux is a neuroscientist at NYU. He uses rats to study the way humans process fear and anxiety. What's the difference, you ask? Ledoux explains. The usual way we talk about fear versus anxiety is fear is a, an emotion to an immediately present threat. Anxiety is an emotion about a threat that hasn't happened yet. You can be anxious about alien abduction, even though most people think that's not something that's possible, but you could be just as afraid as if you were faced with a, a spider or a snake, because it doesn't matter whether it's a real threat. What's important is how your brain is processing that. And as it turns out, It doesn't take that much for us to be afraid of something. Fear is basically forever. Once a rat or a person becomes afraid of something and learns about danger, that fear doesn't go away. That's the bad news. But that bad news comes from good news, because if you're an animal in the wild, you have to be able to remember anything harmful that's happened to you. You don't want to have to relearn about danger. So your brain will store that information and hold on to it forever so that you can be protected. Now, that doesn't mean you can't weaken the response, because you can weaken it. You can uh, reduce the fear by exposing the animal or person to the dangerous stimulus in a safe context until the fear goes away. This is often used in cognitive behavioral therapy. It's called exposure therapy in this case. But one of the things that happens is if you have, a, say, a fear of heights, you would be treated by gradually going higher and higher in the building and, and being exposed in a safe context to this fear, and eventually it might go away. But then a random stress can occur in your life and bring the fear back. So say a patient's mother dies, then a fear of heights or snakes or whatever can come back. 
the fear is always there waiting to be popped up again uh, by something. And again, this has an evolutionary basis, so it's in the brain for a reason, but it causes us a lot of suffering sometimes. Evolution also has a lot to do with common human fears. Think darkness or heights. Think about who our primate ancestors were. You know, there were monkeys living in trees in the forest where there are lots of snakes and spiders living with them. And also, if you live in trees, you know, there's a chance you're going to fall out while you're asleep. And so heights become important. I mean, again, these are evolutionary stories and we can't prove them. But in general, we think of most phobias as coming from some kind of evolutionary basis like that. Now, all species have some sort of fear response. Poke a snail, and it recoils in its shell. Put a cat in the same room as a mouse, and the mouse freezes in terror. But humans are the only species that analyze fear. This too, says Ledoux, is a result of an evolutionary process, and one that's far from finished. We have to think of the brain as a product of evolution, like any other part of the body or any other living thing. It's undergoing the process of evolution, and evolution is continuous, and our brains are not cooked right now. They're continuing to be cooked all the time, so our brains are still evolving. 100 million years, we'll be a different organism altogether. Our brains will have changed quite a bit. But right now, one of the main pieces of unfinished business is the relation between cognition and emotion in our brains. Ledoux's research primarily concerns two areas of the brain. The amygdala is responsible for our quick emotional responses to things. You see a frisbee flying for your head? It's your amygdala that makes you duck before you even think what you're doing. The prefrontal cortex is our rational thought center. And chances are, if you had to use it every time you needed to duck that frisbee, you'd be too slow to miss getting hit with it. When it comes to fear and anxiety, there's an important relationship between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. The connections from the prefrontal cortex to the amygdala are at best indirect and are maybe even non-existent. So it's like you know, having to go through back roads and side streets to get somewhere rather than taking a superhighway. And the amygdala has the superhighway connection back to the cortex. So it's very easy for an emotion to control our thoughts. So once you're afraid, then you, you know, become you start being anxious about everything and your thoughts are grabbed by that. But it's very hard for your thoughts to then stop the emotion once it's started. And there is this kind of interesting disconnect, though, in this that a thought can initiate an emotion, but it can't control an emotion. So basically, it's a one-way neural pathway from your amygdala to your prefrontal cortex. But Ledoux says that if we wait long enough, evolution might have a plan to connect our prefrontal cortex back to our amygdala. After all, the fact that we even have an active prefrontal cortex is already an evolutionary advantage. I guess the way to think about it is the prefrontal cortex is known to be the newest part of the brain. It's bigger in humans than other primates and bigger in other primates. It doesn't even exist in non-primate animals. So other mammals don't have this thing at all. In monkeys and chimps, it's, you know, it's pretty big, but not as big as in the human brain. So it's what makes primates unique in terms of the brain. It's what makes humans unique relative to other primates. And yet, as Ledoux discovered early in his research, when it comes to processing fear, we don't actually need the prefrontal cortex. It's more of like a bonus. Our first major discovery, which is like the very beginning when we started doing this work, was that fear could be elicited without the aid of the cortex. So if you studied animals and removed their entire cortex, a stimulus could still be learned about and could still elicit a fear response, even though the animal had no cortex to process that. So 
that gave us the first clue that you know these kinds of basic emotions are really wired in deep in the brain it doesn't depend on thought or consciousness or anything like that it's just a reaction to a stimulus and that's why we can you know react to danger before we even know what it is that we're reacting to so Ledoux uses rats to study how our amygdalas respond to fear he conditions rats to fear a set of controlled stimuli a rat is put in a cage with a metal floor a loud tone or alarm sounds and immediately afterwards a small electrical shock is administered through the floor of the cage soon every time the rat hears the tone whether or not a shock follows the rat freezes in fear this is called a learned fear and over a long period of time the fear of being shocked can eventually be unlearned in many rats from studying the ways the rat's amygdala responds to this learned fear stimuli ledoux has figured out a lot about the human amygdala Now the amygdala is a complicated structure it has about a dozen different parts and if we take it and put it into a circuit we can see that information comes in here into the lateral nucleus that information then is distributed through amygdala circuits to an area called the central nucleus and then the central nucleus is the output structure so the lateral nucleus is a kind of funnel through which the sensory world is channeled into the amygdala and once danger is detected at the inputs in the amygdala if there's danger coming into these inputs then it's sort of like a floodgate of emotional reactivities opened up and the outputs come out of the central nucleus so you have behavioral responses like freezing you have changes in blood pressure and heart rate that's the autonomic nervous system responding stress hormones are released all of the stuff is happening in the brain happening in the body and stuff in the body's feeding back to the brain so it's all triggered by this input of the sensory information into the lateral amygdala and out to the central nucleus and then out to the body but What about on a smaller scale? Within the amygdala cells, remember we're going to talk about the level of behavior, the level of the neural system, and the level of cells and synapses. So within those cells, there's a lot of stuff that goes on uh, biochemically that's very important for the way this kind of learning takes place. So you have neurotransmitters that are released. So let's imagine this presynaptic neuron is a neuron that's getting sensory information from the outside world about something dangerous. that neuron is now releasing a neurotransmitter called glutamate and that glutamate is binding to glutamate receptors here on this postsynaptic neuron the synapse is the space between the two neurons the neurotransmitter crosses the synaptic space binds to receptors and then if something else has happened calcium will come in the other thing that has to happen in order for calcium to come into the cell is the cell has to be actively stimulated in a strong way and that's what the shock does in in our experiments the shock also comes onto the cell and activates it very strongly and when it does that it changes the cell in such a way that allows calcium to come in through this thing called the NMDA receptor now don't worry about the details all you have to know is that when you pair a weak stimulus like a tone that has no meaning with a strong stimulus like a shock that has meaning for the animal what will happen is a channel will open up so that calcium can come into the cell and when that happens it triggers certain things called protein kinases which are enzymes that go into the nucleus of the cell and initiate the synthesis of proteins those proteins then come back to this synapse and basically glue it together so the next time the stimulus comes it doesn't need the shock anymore it can activate the cell by itself and that's how any kind of association in your brain is formed whether it's about danger or the uh, way someone looks and the way they sound 
these things are always being paired up in this kind of way. But if our brains essentially respond the same way to fear, why is it that some people are braver than others or take bigger risks? Well, everybody's brain is wired differently, you know, and that's due to their kind of family genetic background, the background of the mother and the father, and how those genes get mixed up. And, you know, we all have the same basic brain plan. So the overall structure gives you an amygdala that, you know, is wired up in a certain way. But the way that amygdala functions in you is due in part to your particular genetic family history, also to, you know, the random events that occur during your early development and to the environmental influences that are shaping the way the brain gets wired as you go through life. So all of that provides you know, lots of opportunity for some people to be really afraid and others not so afraid in the same situation. Now, one of the things we know, because we've kind of studied all this and taken it apart in the brain, is that we know that the sensitivity to danger is different from the reactivity to danger. So one part of the amygdala detects the danger and another part responds to the danger. So you can have uh, two people that are reacting the same way to a dangerous stimulus, but one could be because they're more sensitive to the danger, or the other because they're more reactive. Two people might sense the same amount of threat, but one is going to respond bigger. This is the kind of thing Ledoux is hoping he can study next with his rats. One of the things we're very interested in is, is how we shift from being emotional reactors to emotional actors. So you find yourself in an emotional situation and you react. Now what do you do? Well, we spent 25 years studying reactions, and now we want to figure out how you know, reactions are working. The other thing is individual differences. What makes one rat afraid and another rat not afraid in the same situation? So we're starting to take out their amygdalas and see what's different in animals that are afraid and not afraid in a given situation, looking for gene differences and, and other things in the amygdala. For Science in the City, I'm Elena Ranke. listening. Do you love your Science in the City podcasts? Then you should support them by becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences. You can do that by visiting scienceandthecity.org and clicking Join NIAS. Did you know you can subscribe to our Science in the City podcast series on iTunes and you can get our newest story downloaded every week automatically to your iTunes library? Search Science and the City in your iTunes search bar. If you have any questions or comments about our show, please let us hear your feedback. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org, or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. If you want to know more about science in New York City, visit us online, scienceandthecity.org. See you next week.